listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Stonegate, it is great to see you again this morning. And I told you last week, uh, I experienced my greatest fear. It is standing up in a room that has no people in it preaching. And this is week two of my greatest fear. But isn't it amazing that the Spirit of God lives in us? And the Spirit of God has the capacity to energize and illuminate the scriptures, whether we're all gathered together in an auditorium or whether you're in your car, in your living room, listening to these words. So we're going to trust the Spirit to do that today. So if you've got your Bible, grab, uh, grab them and go to James chapter 2. And as you turn there, let me remind you of what we do around here. We, we say it in a really simple phrase. We enjoy Jesus and we make disciples. That's what we do. And we've done the, the sort of hard work of developing those key characteristics around what a disciple is. What, what are those key marks of a disciple? And one of those marks is that a disciple lives in community. Christianity is a team sport. It was always meant to be a team sport. It wasn't meant to be lived in isolation even in moments of social distancing. And Stonegate, can we all agree that there is a big difference between social distancing and social isolation? Social distancing is completely doable in unique seasons like the ones we're living in right now, but, but social isolation is never doable for a Christian because Christianity is a team sport. So the best way you can come out of isolation and into community is through groups. Uh, we have uh, roughly 70 groups right now, and because of COVID-19, all of them are meeting online. But we have 70 groups spread across our area meeting online. And we want to invite you into one of those groups. If you are loosely connected at Stonegate right now, this is your time to move into community. So next Sunday, we are going to have a group sync online. It's an online way for you to be able to find community, to find a group at Stonegate. Then the following Sunday on Easter, our plan is to launch a whole new round of groups for everyone that's watching right now that is loosely connected. You're here, but Stonegate's more of a crowd than a community. It's for everyone who is loosely connected to move into community. So if that's you and you're looking at me right now, I want to make sure, here's your action step. I want to make sure right now where you are, you grab your phone, pull that out, uh, go to your text messages, and text group sync to 97,000. Group sync to 97000. Uh, if you'll do that for us, that's your first step. We'll send some information back to you uh, to, to get rolling toward that group sync online next Sunday. So with that said, we're back into the book of James. Last week, we prioritized a passage uh, that, that really put something solid under our feet. That's what James 4 is meant to do. James asked that question, what is your life? And he answers it by saying, your life is a vapor. So last week, James put something solid under our feet. But this week, we're prioritizing a passage that puts something beautiful in our hands. He puts a gift. This passage puts a gift this gift that springs from a heart of faith. This passage puts a gift in our hands that every one of our neighbors need right now in this unique season. So to see that gift, let's go to James chapter 2. This paragraph in James 2 that starts in verse 14 and goes to verse 26 is both the most controversial 
part of this letter and the most important part of this letter. Now, in light of that, in light of it being both the most important and the most controversial, I want to start by by taking the point James is making in this paragraph, and I want to say it as clearly and concisely as I can for you. And just as an aside, I think this is a good Bible reading tip. Anytime you read through a passage, maybe it's a paragraph, maybe it's a chapter, it's always good to slow down and ask yourself the question, how would I summarize in a simple way what I just read? So let me give you my summary of James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Here is my two-word summary. This is the point James is trying to convey to you and I, the readers of this text. His point is, faith works. Faith works. And James introduces this big idea in verse 14. He does it with two questions. Look at these two questions in verse 14. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Now, notice that word says in verse 14. That that is a huge word in that first question. That word says, you might underline that word. James isn't talking here about someone who possesses faith. He's not talking about a person who possesses genuine, real faith. He's not talking about someone who possesses faith. He's talking about someone who professes faith. That's who he's talking about in verse 14. Now, do you see the difference between those two? And James gives us a test. How do you know if you profess or possess faith? He says, if if you profess faith that doesn't produce fruit, then you have a faulty faith. Then it's not a genuine, real faith. He says that, that, that type of faith, this saving faith, produces good fruit. But that faulty faith... Right, right, that faith that he's talking about here that professes faith but doesn't possess it, he, he says, what good is it? If it doesn't produce things in our life, produce good in our life, what works in our life, what, what good is it? And then you see it again in the second question. Look at verse 14. He says, can that faith, can that faith save him? Now, let me just clarify, James is on team faith. James likes faith. James loves faith. Faith is a living, active, dynamic reality in our heart, right? And, th- and, and faith works. This is James' point in this passage. That, that, that sort of active, living, dynamic reality works in our life. That, that living reality in our hearts has a way of working out through our hands. So James is all about faith. He is wearing the jersey of team faith. He's got the tattoo. He's got it all. He, he loves faith. But James rails against that faith. There is a certain type of faith, that faith, that James doesn't like. Now, now what is that faith? That faith is a faith that doesn't work. It's a a faith that that doesn't work out through your hands because it was never in your heart. It's it's the sort of faith that's professed but not possessed internally, deep down in your soul. It's a faulty faith, a faith that produces no fruit. And James is at war, right? He wants to eradicate that faith. He doesn't like that faith. And look again at that second question in verse 14. James asks, can that faith, that faith that he is at war against, can that faith save him? Now, that question is coming with an implied answer. The implied answer is, no, that faith cannot save anyone. Now, let's just allow that that question and that implied answer to sober us for a moment. 
Stonegate, the, the stakes could not be any higher. James is looking forward, forward into the future, and he's having us imagine that moment when we stand before the risen Jesus, who is now our judge. And for all of those who possess a genuine faith, Jesus welcomes them into life with him forever. But James is also saying for those who, who have that faith, that faulty faith, that faith that doesn't work, that faith that doesn't produce fruit. For all those who refuse Jesus, even when their refusal is wrapped in all sorts of grand public professions of faith in Jesus, for all those who have that faith, they will be cut off from Jesus forever. The stakes couldn't be higher. James is saying that faith, that, that faulty faith, saying that faith is powerless to save. So, brothers and sisters, can we just, can we have a moment before the Lord where we just begin to ask the Lord, will you show me what kind of faith I have? Is it the faith that James loves, or is it the, the, that faith, that, that sort of faith that James is railing against and at war with in this passage? But, but here's James's point. Faith, genuine faith, Faith works. Now, I love how the Reformers used to talk about this idea of faith working itself out in our lives. The Reformers used to say it this way. They used to say, yes, faith alone saves. Let's just clarify that. Faith alone saves. And just faith. Faith alone. That does the saving work in our life. But the faith that saves is never alone. So strike the balance there. They say faith alone saves. It's just faith. We can't smuggle works into our salvation. Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. Now, this is the point that James is making. Faith alone. Not faith plus works. Faith alone saves. But that faith that saves us is living and active and vibrant, and it never stays alone. That faith that saves works. This is the drum that James is beating throughout this passage. So, so I want you to see this. Three times in, in these uh, 12 verses, James is going to say the exact same thing, that faith works. It, it works. Look at verse 17. Here's the first one. Verse 17. James says, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So he's just affirming, yes, faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. Now, again, just let me, let me clarify. Works do not save, but the faith that does save works. This is what James is saying here. Faith works. You see it again in verses 18 through 20. Look at verse 18. In verse 18, James is platforming an objection. The person who's going to raise his hand and say, James, I don't like what you're saying. I disagree with what you're saying. He platforms that person and imagines their objection. And here's what James says. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Okay, that's, that's the objection. This person is trying to sever the link between faith and works. They're saying, yeah, yeah some have faith and other people, they're going to have works. But, but what's the problem? The, the faith guy can just do his faith things and the works guy can just sort of do their works thing. What, what, what's the problem here, James? And James says, well, th this is the problem. He says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Th that's the problem. He's saying faith alone saves, but saving faith shows up in fruit. 
It, it, it does things. Faith works. Now, again, just to clarify, works don't rescue. What rescues us is faith alone in Christ alone. Works don't rescue, but works reveal. Works show us, is saving faith actually in us? Faith works. He goes on in verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Now listen to what James says here. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now to make his point, James is intentionally provocative. That's what's happening in this passage. And I can actually appreciate that. He's trying to make sure he's shaking us with these words and saying, do you see what I'm saying? He's being intentionally provocative. He's saying that, you know, even demons have good doctrine. The problem with demons is not their doctrine. They have great doctrine. If you read through the Gospels, you're going to see that they're seeing with more clarity who Jesus is than anyone else in the crowds around Jesus. So demons have good doctrine. James is also saying that they even respond emotionally to that doctrine. They have good doctrine and they're shuddering, he says. And James is saying that that faith, that faith that he is at war with in this passage, James is saying that faith, that faulty faith that he's talking about here, that faith that fails to work, that faith, that sort of faith is just like their faith. He says, even the demons believe and shudder. Now, James concludes with that drumbeat again in verse 20. He says, faith apart from works is useless. He just keeps that point in front of us, the whole passage. He's saying, listen, faith works. The faith that saves is never alone. Yes, you're saved by faith alone, but it doesn't stay alone. Faith works. And then you see it one more time in verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the third time in 12 verses that James is just making the exact same point. He's saying faith works. And faith that doesn't work is faulty, it's dead, it's useless, it's of no value in our life. Now, that begins to beg a couple of questions. It leads us to ask a question or two to James. And one of those questions would go like this. Well, why, why does faith work? James, why is it like this? You're saying faith works, but why does faith work? Now, to answer that question, we need to ask another question. And the other question is, well, what is a Christian? If we want to know why faith works, we've got to understand what a Christian is. And the Bible is clear, and James is clear in this passage, that a Christian is not someone who has agreed with some facts about God. A Christian is not just someone who agrees with um, God is one, that the God is triune, that the, the, the Father has sent the Son, Jesus, to, to live in our place, to die in our place, and on the third day to bust out of the grave. A Christian is not just someone who agrees with those facts. James tells us here that even the demons have good doctrine. The demons believe in all of those facts. So becoming a Christian isn't primarily an issue of agreement. Becoming a Christian is primarily an issue of affections. It's primarily an issue of affections. A Christian doesn't just say, I agree with Jesus. A Christian doesn't just say that. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. A Christian also says, I actually love Jesus. 
That's a Christian, someone who actually loves Jesus. When people ask me periodically, what is a Christian? I often respond by just quoting Psalm 42, verse 1. And I say, a Christian is a person who says this, as the deer pants for water, so my soul pants after you, O God. That, that's a Christian, someone who actually loves Jesus like that. A agree, yes, but more than agreement, its affections have now risen up in them to the risen Jesus. They actually love Jesus. So when you're asking the question, what is a Christian, maybe this could be a way that we could answer it. A Christian is a new creation. A Christian is a new creation. I love how one pastor summarized conversion, the moment we become a Christian. He says, conversion is the creation of new desires, not just new duties, new delights, not just new deeds, new treasures, not just new tasks. If you're a Christian, you have been internally recreated by grace. That's, been, that's true of you if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're, if you're in Christ. It's, it's like a computer that was completely um, wiped clean, re reformatted, and a whole new operating system was installed on that new computer. And that new operating system has now imparted to you new desires and new delights. See, a Christian doesn't just say, yes, I agree with Jesus. A Christian doesn't say less than that, but they say more than that. They also say, no, I've actually been given a new heart. And that new heart is exploding with new affections for Jesus. That's a Christian. So now we're ready to answer the question, why does faith work? Why is that? Well, faith works because new creations live new lives. That's why faith works. God has made you a new thing. He's made you a new creation. And as a new creation, you can't help but live a new life. Now, think about an apple tree for a moment. Picture someone coming to you and saying, um, why does that tree produce apples? Why does an apple tree produce apples? Just imagine what your response might be to that question. How would you respond? I mean, in short, the way I would respond is, well, because that's what apple trees do. Apple trees produce apples. How could an apple tree not produce apples? The, the fruit of an apple is connected down into the root of an apple tree. Apple trees, the, the nature, the, the, the creation that is an apple tree produces apples. And this is the same logic that James uses. N new creations live new lives. Rescued people work. Rescued, saved people get to work. Jesus has saved us. He's remade us on the deepest levels of our heart. And that remade us can't help but living new lives. Faith works. Now, that leads to the second question. Well, how does that faith work? Now, to answer that, James gives us three pictures in this passage. And these three pictures illustrate faith working. Now, these pictures aren't meant to be exhaustive. They're meant to be pictures that, that in some ways open up our heart and mind to explore and think through what should faith at work in my life look like. So what do we learn from these three pictures? Here's the first thing we learn, that faith sacrifices. Faith sacrifices. Now, you see this in verses 21 through 23. Listen to what James says here. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? 
you see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Now, when you read that passage in James, you, you instantly get a sense of why there's controversy around this passage. Because if you read Paul and you just read James right here in James 2, you, you can instantly see the tension created between them. Paul is going to say things like this in Romans chapter 3. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now we read here in James, in verse 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he did this action? Now, anytime you come to moments like this in the scriptures, it's an opportunity to slow down, to consider, to think it through. And let's just pause and do that for a moment. Think about words for a moment. The same words can have multiple meanings. We, we all know this in our everyday life. The same word in different contexts can have different meanings. If you had a friend that looked at you in just, it's a beautiful fall day. Let's say it's in an, an October day. And your friend looks at you and says, hey, uh, let's watch some football on Sunday. Now, what, what does that friend mean? Well, it depends. Is that friend an American or an Englishman? Because that's going to determine what he means by those words. The word football means something different to an American. And we know the right meaning, right? But it means something different for us than it does our English friends. They mean something much different by that word. So in the same way, words can have multiple meanings. And to find the meaning of a word, you have to look at the context. Context is king for determining a meaning. So the same is true, just like football has different meanings, the same is true with this word justified in the passage that we just read. Now, think about that word justified. It can mean in the Bible that we are declared righteous by God. And that, that declared righteousness isn't because of something we do. It's because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. He came and lived in our place, died in our place, and rose from the dead on the third day. His dying love canceled our debt, and his perfect life was credited to our account. The, the word justified in the Bible can mean that, to be declared righteous by God. Now, that is the way Paul uses the word. But it's not the only way that word can be used. If someone came up to you and said, uh, hey, do you know Pastor Rodney? Uh, do you know Pastor Rodney can dunk a basketball? D did you know that? Well, first of all, let's just acknowledge. Uh, they would be right if that goal was seven feet tall. They would totally be on it. But if someone said that to you, it would be perfectly right for you to look back at them and to say, uh, can you justify that? Like, how are we getting there? Can, can you demonstrate that? Can you justify? Can you, can you show me how you arrived at that conclusion? Right? Because there's another way to use that word. That word justify can also mean to demonstrate proof, to give evidence, to show why this is the way that it is. So it, it doesn't just mean to declare righteous. It can also be used to say, uh, to, to, to demonstrate, to, to show proof of the statement that was just said. So this is how James uses the word justify. James isn't saying with that word justify, he isn't saying you are declared righteous because of your work. 
James is saying that your works demonstrate that you have been declared righteous. That's, that's the way James is using the word justify. Now, let's consider the story of Abraham. Abraham was saved by faith alone. Now, you see this in verse 23. Uh, James says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Now, that event, when Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, that event happened in Genesis chapter 15. It's actually a really interesting chapter. It's the first time the word believe is used in the Bible. Abraham believed God. That's genuine faith in Jesus. And Abraham, in that moment of believing God, was declared righteous by God. Now, James then doesn't pick up on the, the Genesis 15 moment. He picks up on the moment in Genesis 22. Genesis 22 is, in a lot of ways, the defining moment of obedience in Abraham's life. Genesis 22 comes uh, roughly 30 years after Genesis 15. And Genesis 22 is the story of, of God coming to Abraham and asking Abraham to sacrifice his one and only son, Isaac. Now, think about Isaac for a moment. Isaac was the son God promised to Abraham. They had waited for years for Isaac. Isaac was the son that God promised would, would through, through your sons, Abraham, I'm going to bless the nations. That whole promise hung on Isaac. And now God comes to Abraham and says, give me your, your one and only son. I want you to sacrifice your one and only son, your beloved son, Isaac. And Abraham obeyed immediately. He and Isaac walked that painful path up the mountain. Isaac willingly went to the altar. Abraham, just imagine that scene. Abraham lifted his knife. And at the last moment, God said, no, Abraham, stop. I see that you love me. I see that you're willing to give your one and only to me, your precious but beloved son. So Abraham, stop. I've provided a ram caught in the thicket. Offer that lamb as a sacrifice, not your son. So what is James' point in using this illustration, this story of Abraham? The point is faith works. The faith that saved Abraham in Genesis 15 showed itself in Genesis 22. As Abraham offered his prized possession, his one and only, his beloved son, Isaac. This story is showing us that faith sacrifices. That faith, like a seed planted in us by God, produces the fruit of sacrifice. This is how faith works. Faith sacrifices. Faith makes us willing to, to give our Isaacs, our one and only, those things that we most love. Faith makes us willing to give, to sacrifice even those things. Or maybe you could think of it this way. Faith produces in us an open heart before God. And we've talked about this repeatedly at Stonegate. That this is the posture we continually want before God, an open heart. And that's, that's different than, than approaching God with the posture of a closed heart. This is the way you could think about a closed heart. A closed heart um, puts a box behind them. And that box, in that box, they put everything that is most valuable in their life. All of their Isaacs go in the box behind them. All of their one and only, all of their like, the really beloved possessions, they all find their way in the box, and then we lock the box. 
And then we come to God with that box locked behind us, and we come to God with what's negotiable. Now, God, you can make calls on these things that are left in my life. That is coming to God with a closed heart. And this passage is showing us that is not the way of faith. No, faith sacrifices. It comes to God with an open heart. An open heart means we unlock the box. We take all of our Isaacs out of the the box. All of our one and onlys out of the box. And we bring all of those things, all of the most valuable things in our life, and we set those before God, and now we say to God, you can have whatever you want. All of these things are yours, O God. They're all yours. You, You can have what you want whenever you want them. That's a heart of faith. It's it's open hearted. Faith sacrifices. So maybe we could ask ourselves today. Is there anything right now that you're withholding from God? Is there anything God is asking you to offer that you are refusing to offer to him? This is how faith works. Faith sacrifices. But it's not the only way faith works. This passage also shows us that faith embraces risk. It embraces risk. Embracing risk is embedded into the Christian life. There's just no way around it. I love how a pastor of a generation ago used to say it. He used to say it like this. Faith is spelled R-I-S-K. Now, you see this in verse 25 in the story of Rahab. James says this in verse 25. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Now, think about the story of Rahab for a moment. That that story takes us all the way back to Joshua chapter 2. The people of God are entering the promised land, that land that God had promised to them. And Jericho was the sort of first big fortified city in the land. So Joshua sent spies into Jericho, and those spies, while in Jericho, met Rahab. And in that meeting, Rahab receives Jesus, right? She she expresses faith in, in God. Rahab received the gift of saving faith. She declared to these spies, the Lord, your God, spies, your God, he is the God in heaven above and earth below. In that moment, she was rescued by God. But then her faith got to work. Her her faith worked. At the risk of her life, she harbored the spies and then helped them escape. Right? So, So here's the story of Rahab. She put her faith in God, then risked her life to help God's people. That's what we see in the story of Rahab. And this is James's point. Faith works. And this is one way that it works. Faith embraces risk. It embraces risk for the well-being of others. That's what Rahab shows us. That faith embraces risk for the well-being of others. Now, you see this throughout the Bible. Throughout the Bible, God gives opportunities to his people to embrace risk for the well-being of others. Rahab is an example of that. Uh, Queen Esther is an example of that. But these opportunities aren't just confined to the scriptures. You also see them throughout church history. Uh, Many of those sort of unique opportunities to embrace risk for the well-being of others came in the midst of pandemics like we're in today. It came in the midst of economic upheaval. And in those sort of seasons of uncertainty, Jesus gives us a living faith, an active, a vibrant faith that is distinctively Christian. 
It allows us to work and do things like embrace risk, to to take on risk for the well-being of others. Now, here's the problem with that, though. The problem is we all have remaining sin in us. And here's what remaining sin does. Remaining sin um, puts in us a way of seeing the world that works like this. Um, Anytime we perceive a threat, maybe that threat is a medical threat, maybe it's an economic threat, but anytime we perceive a threat, then we feel fear, and then there's an innate sort of human response that kicks in that says, you need to circle the wagons as tight as you can get them around your life. Bring it in as far as you can around your little life to make sure that you make it. There is an innate response like that that kicks in. And that whole sort of mentality, that that innate sort of a response, that that whole way of seeing that the Bible shows us in passages like this, that that way of seeing is sub-Christian. So, of course, wisdom can and should move followers of Jesus to cut extras in times of uncertainties to take appropriate precautions in times of uncertainty, of course it should do that. But at the same time, faith should be moving every follower of Jesus to embrace risk for the well-being of others. Uh, To keep, maybe you can see it this way, to keep the the circle of their wagons wide enough so that people who are less fortunate than them can come inside of, of that circle and be protected and cared for. That's the mentality that Jesus plants in his church. This is the mentality that he bestows and gives to his church. This is why throughout church history, when when people have fled from pandemics, even doctors have fled cities to get away from, from the risk. When that's happened, when people have fled things like pandemics, Christians have stayed, that they've embraced risk for the well-being of others, to to care for the sick and those in need. And I just can't help but thinking a passage like this, James chapter 2, was put in the Bible by God for moments just like this. For moments just like the one we're living in now, times of uncertainty and upheaval. A passage like this was put in the Bible to show us the distinctive way that faith works. This moment right now is just in so many ways packed with potential. And this passage is meant to get us thinking, what what new risk can I embrace for the sake of love? What new risk can I embrace for the well-being of others? What, What resources might I need to let go of? What needs should I take on and risk to meet? It gets us thinking like that because faith works. And one of the ways that faith works is by embracing risk. But this passage shows us one other way that faith works. It doesn't just work through sacrifice and risk. This passage shows us that faith also acts. Faith acts. Look at verses 15 and 16. James says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, James says this about it. He asks this question, What good is that? What's the good in that moment? Now, think about the pictures that we've seen thus far in this passage. Uh, Picture one is Abraham. Faith sacrifices. Faith readies our heart to give our one and only, our Isaacs. Uh, Picture two, Rahab. 
That picture shows us that faith works by embracing risk for the well-being of others. Now, those are positive examples. They're showing us what a living, dynamic, saving faith does, that, that that sort of a faith works. Picture three, on the other hand, is not positive, it's negative. This is the picture showing us what a faulty faith does, what, what a dead faith does, what a faith that doesn't work, what, what that sort of faith does. And here's the picture. You have a man who professes faith but doesn't possess faith. Now, how do you know that? Well, this is how you know. Here's how. This man sees a brother or sister in need. Now, now think about it. It's a brother or sister. That, that, is, that, that is saying something about the relationship to that person. That is likely a person in their church family. And that brother or sister has nothing but rags on. They have no clothes. And that brother or sister is hungry. They have no food to eat. And this man's dead faith sees that need and says, responds by saying, go in peace, be warmed and filled. And James is saying, no, that, that, is, that is a faulty faith. What, what good is that sort of faith? James is saying that, that faith won't do. That, that faith is dead. That, that faith in the end will leave you damned. That's what James is saying here. And by the way, the rest of the Bible agrees on this. John agrees. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, we read this. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? That is the consistent view of the scriptures, that, that faith works. It, it works by acting for the good of those who are in need. So let's, let's flip the illustration. If that's the negative, how would we frame this in a positive way? Well, here is how faith works. Faith asks, or, or acts. Faith sees a need and then moves to meet that need. Real faith works itself out in real acts of love toward other people. Uh, listen to Martin Luther. This is the way he describes it. He, he, talking about faith, he says, Faith is a living, busy, active, powerful thing. It is impossible that it should not be ceaselessly doing that which is good. It does not even ask whether good works should be done. But before the question can be asked, it has already done them and is constantly engaged in doing them. He who does not do such works is a man without faith. Now that's, that's the point James is making. Faith acts. It's living. It's busy. It's active. It's powerful. It's ceaselessly doing that which is good. This is the point that James is making here. Faith sees the mistiness of its life, and then faith gets about doing all the good it can while it can. Faith acts. It sees the needs around, and then it moves to meet the needs. So Stonegate, here, here's what I want to do for the rest of our time together. I want to just ask the, the simple question of, in light of what we're reading in this passage of faith working, but by sacrificing, by risking, by acting, what might this look like in our church family? What might this passage applied to our church in this time look like? Because isn't this the type of church you want to be in? Isn't this the type of church that, that, that you want? A church full of active, living, 
busy faith, a faith that works, a faith that, that moves out into the world, sacrificing and risking and acting on behalf of others, seeing needs and then moving into those needs to meet those needs. Isn't that the sort of church that you want? I know it's the kind of church that I want. I want us to be known as a people who refuse to pass over the needs of others. I want us to be known, Stonegate, as a people who are doing all the good they can while they can. So as a way to apply this passage, we are launching right now, this moment, this Sunday, a new initiative in the life of our church. And this new initiative is called Love Thy Neighbor. Love Thy Neighbor. This is the gift that James intends to put in your hand. It's a beautiful gift. It's the gift that every one of your neighbors need from you in this season. It is the gift of love. This is what James is calling us toward for faith to so fill our heart that it moves us out toward our neighbors in all sorts of works of love. Now, I want to be as specific as I can in what we're asking in this new initiative, Love Thy Neighbor. We're really asking for faith this week to work itself out in these two ways. Here are the two ways. First, we're encouraging everyone in our church family to pray by name for your neighbors. And, and maybe your neighbors would be, uh, maybe it's applied better to your uh, coworkers. Maybe it's your circle of, of kind of relationships and influence. You just apply it how you would need. But we're asking you to pray for, uh, by name for your neighbors. By name. Now, let me just encourage you. One of the things I think would be helpful is if all of us looked at our neighborhood in a different way. God is calling every son and daughter, every one of his people, to, to think about themselves in your neighborhood, not just as a neighbor, but as a pastor in your neighborhood. And as a pastor, God has sent you into your neighborhood to care for your neighbors, to pray for your, your, for your neighbors, to, to, to go to them and, and figure out how you can pray for them by name. That, that, that's what a pastor would do in your neighborhood, among your, your coworkers, to pray by name. Now, if you don't know their name, this would be a good thing to start with. To just learn their names. But in saying that we're going to pray for them by name, the goal isn't just by name. Embedded into that is you are discovering the needs in their life and you're praying for those needs. So, so you're learning their name and you're finding needs and you're praying for them. So we're going to encourage everyone in our church family this week to, to maybe it's you call your neighbors. And by name, you, you ask them, what are the needs going on in your life? How can I pray for you? Or maybe you knock on your neighbor's door and then you back up like 10 feet and you let them answer. And then you ask them, what are the needs going on in your life? And so this is such a unique moment. If you were to ask that same question three months ago, you probably get a different answer than when you ask that question today. How can I pray for you? What is one need that I can pray for right now in your life? So let's pray by name. So pray by name. Then here's the second thing we're asking everyone in our church family to do. Pray by name and then to meet a need. Uh, church, let's do all the good we can while we can. It, it, just a few weeks ago, just to share one story in the life of our church. A few weeks ago, uh, we had a family in our church who was remodeling a space to open up a business. And in the middle of the pandemic, in the middle of that, of all seasons, 
as they're trying to remodel their space to open up their business, uh, someone broke into that space and stole all of their tools. Uh, Another person in our church family heard about that, uh, and the next morning they show up while the owners of the space are talking to the police about the the break-in that just happened, and they looked at at, at this couple and said, "I, I know your tools were stolen last night. I'm bringing up all of my tools. You can keep them as long as you need uh, to get the job done. Now, Stonegate, that that is just one illustration. That that is just one story of one person in one moment. But Stonegate, can you imagine what happens, all the good that can be done, when not just one person is telling that one story, but thousands of people are moving out into the world with this living, vibrant faith that is working. Can you imagine all the good that we could do? So Stonegate, I'm looking at you and saying, this week, for this season in front of us, let's find out. Let's, let's love our neighbors and find out what good a church like this can do with people full of faith and ready to meet the needs of others. Now, there will, of course, be ways that, that our church as a whole can unite and, and sort of centralize the, the sort of journey of, of doing all the good we can while we can. There's going to be spaces for our church to do just that, to come together and do those things. But here is the emphasis of this week. We're looking at you, and I'm, I want to just plead with you this week. Here is the challenge, to pray by name, and then as you're praying by name and discovering those needs, that you meet those needs. Stonegate, James has put a beautiful gift in our hand. He has packaged up the gift of faith, working itself, working itself out in love. He's put that gift in our hands. So church, let's give that gift to our neighbors this week. Will you pray with me? I want to give you just a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press into you what would be most helpful this morning and to wipe away the things that wouldn't be helpful. And Stonegate, let me just remind you that Works don't rescue, only faith. It's faith alone in Christ alone. That that alone will rescue. Works don't rescue, but works do reveal. Is saving faith in me? So in some ways, this is the most important question that you could ask. Have you put your faith in Jesus? And if you're wrong about this, it won't matter what else you're right about. And I love the two stories embedded into this passage. You've got Abraham, a patriarch, and Rahab, a prostitute. So maybe you're thinking this morning, how in the world could God ever rescue me? How could God ever bring me into his family? Rodney, you don't know what I've done. And I would graciously look back at you and say, "Um, I don't think you know what Jesus has done. He's lived in your place. He's died in your place, risen from the dead on the third day so that a person just like you or Rahab or Abraham could be welcomed into his family. Have you put your faith in Jesus? If not, this is your moment. This is your moment where you can turn from your sin and throw your life upon the life, death, 
and resurrection of Jesus. So just there where you are, you can communicate that up to God. God, here is my life. I am offering it to you. I am trusting that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection will make me right with you, oh God. You can do that right now where you are. But then there's a second question. Is your faith working? Is it working by sacrificing, by risking, by acting? Is your faith working? And maybe there where you are, you can just, you can begin to to think and ask the Lord to give you wisdom and creativity and ideas to explore. How can you love your neighbor? What neighbors do you want to start praying by name for? Discovering needs in their life. And then this, this week, how can you move toward those needs and actually meet them? How can you make their problem your problem? Their burden your burden? Father, will you give us wisdom in this? Will you show us? God, will you make us a people with a living, active, vibrant faith that is working? And may it work this week as we pray by name for neighbors. And may it work this week as we begin to move into those needs and we meet those needs around us. So, oh God, help us. And it's in the good name of Jesus we ask it. Amen.